Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the Project Accelerator. In the blink of a cosmic clock, I went from quantum physicist to Air Force test pilot, which could have been fun if I knew how to fly. Fortunately, I had help, an observer from the project named Al. Unfortunately, Al's a hologram, so all he can lend is moral support. Anyway, here I am, bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong. A sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto, and I don't even need a mask. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 13, Blind Faith. We are in New York City. Today is... February 6, 1964. Right. Andrew Ross is the Ray Charles of classical music. You don't understand what, what it's like to be told by someone that, that, you, that you have no talent... That, you, that you'll never amount to anything and that, and that you're not pretty enough for anyone to ever want. I kill myself putting you through nursing school and you go gallivanting through the city with God knows who. I wasn't with anyone. It was just a concert. And when you flunk your finals, it will be more than just a concert, won't it? And when you wake up 20 years later and you realize that you're no longer young and good-looking but you're tired and you're worn out from trying to support that baby, it will be more than just a concert, won't it? According to Ziggy, Andrew's concert was a huge success. It won't be now. Uh, oh, boy. After the concert, Michelle was strangled in Central Park. Ooh. Hello, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we are talking about the fifth episode of Season 2, Episode 14 of Quantum Leap, Blind Faith. We have a great show for you today. Later on in the episode, we have an interview with Jennifer Rhodes, who played Agnes Stevens in this episode. Michelle's mom, yeah. So that'll be great to hear. Uh, it's a really nice interview. Hopefully she was nicer in person than she was in the episode. Oh my goodness, yes. Nothing like her character on Quantum Leap. She was more like her character on Charmed, Graham's Hollywell. Oh, I like that show. It was a really great opportunity to get to talk to her, and she was a really nice lady. So what did you think of this episode? I liked it, even though it was kind of simple. Not a lot happened. There was a serial killer. There was the Beatles. There was a verbally abusive mother. But uh, all in all, not a lot happened. But I still liked it. It was really good. It was also only a, what, two-day span? Yeah, he was only there for a short time. It was a cute story, though. I like the dog, Chopin. He was awesome. Wasn't he? So what did you think of this episode, Heather? I liked it. it. Like you said, it was a simple episode. I mean, there really wasn't um, any huge social issues, but it was a good concept for an episode. And I like that they kind of touched on the Beatles a little bit, like in the background, you know, they kind of were like, yeah, the Beatles are coming to town. But I liked watching Sam slip up. I would, I was getting so mad at him. I'm like, just close your eyes, <laughs> like the whole episode. So that was, it was fun to have like that frustration towards him in like, Dude, you're killing me. Just close your eyes and pretend you're blind and stop looking at things. Yeah, you have a dog to lead you around. You don't really have to keep your eyes open. Well, I mean, walking, I'd probably keep my eyes open. But 
he did good with the sandwich and the mustard. He did good. By then he was catching on. He was like, okay, I should feel around for it, not just pick it up and eat it. But he also asked where his mustard was and then said she hadn't eaten her sandwich and said she had a beautiful smile all <laughs> in that time period. So he was like, it was coming and going, the knowledge of being blind. He was really good in some parts, but really not good in other parts. Yeah, like he probably shouldn't have said something about the mother being there. I guess you, you're you not used to being blind. I remember reading behind the scenes information about Glee and it said that Kevin McHale, who plays Artie, would tap his toes to the music when he was in the wheelchair. So I guess you kind of don't realize the limitations on something like that. So, but still close your eyes and pretend. Yeah. Close your eyes while you're reading a dog food box out loud. I have problems with that scene too, but that's mostly (laughs) Al that I had problems with. (laughs) I'm sure we'll get there. I do have a lot to talk about with this episode though. So we do have a lot to talk about after the episode recap. This is season two, episode five. Blind Faith. Written by Scott Shepard, directed by David Finney. Sam finds himself just finishing a piano performance in a huge music hall. As the audience bursts into applause, Sam has no choice but to stand up and take a bow. He notices a dog at his side barking at him, realizing he is wearing dark glasses and concludes that he's supposed to be blind. A woman offstage, his assistant, Michelle Stevens, calls over the dog Chopin. He drags Sam along with him, and she congratulates Sam, referring to him as Andrew. The crowd calls for an encore while Chopin growls at Sam, sensing who he really is, and Michelle is surprised that Sam isn't going out for the encore. Realizing he has no choice, Sam goes back to the piano, hesitates, and then starts playing chopsticks. The audience thinks he's trying to be humorous and applaud his effort. As Sam leaves the stage, Michelle says she's looking forward to seeing what he'll play tomorrow night. Outside, Michelle escorts Sam home, and she talks about how much she admires him. Sam spots a newspaper confirming he's in New York City on February 6, 1964. When Michelle wonders how he knew they were at a newspaper kiosk, Sam claims he heard newspapers rustling. As they continue on, neither one notices a headline about a third girl strangled in Central Park. Michelle asks him why he decided to play chopsticks, and Sam claims it's the only thing that came to mind. They go to Sam's apartment building, and she says her mother wants her home by midnight, and that she hopes Sam will like her mother. She kisses Sam on the cheek and says goodnight. A French woman comes out with her dogs and takes them for a walk, as Sam realizes he lives in the building as well. He confirms what apartment he lives in and starts to go in, and police officer Peter O'Shannon comes out of the neighboring apartment on his way to work. He complains about the fact that police are working double shifts to protect some British rock performers in town. Peter feeds Chopin some peanuts, and Sam goes into the apartment. Michelle takes the bus home and removes some hidden books from behind the fire hose. Her mother, Agnes, is waiting and complains that Michelle didn't call and is running late. Michelle claims she was studying and was out with friends. Agnes knows she's lying because she left one of her books behind. Michelle says she went to Carnegie Hall because she got a ticket for a concert at the last moment. Agnes complains about how she's working to give Michelle the money she needs to enter nursing school and how she'll end up alone with a daughter when her husband abandons her. Michelle gives in and Agnes takes a more sympathetic tone, saying that nursing is steady work and there will be no Prince Charming to sweep her away. Sam is trying to find Andrew's music when Al arrives and explains that Andrew learned to play by ear. Al checks his hand link and confirms Sam is in New York three days before the Beatles played the Ed Sullivan Show. Andrew's concert will be a huge success, but afterward, Michelle is strangled in Central Park. Sam figures since he can see, he can prevent Michelle from being killed. 
He's concerned that he won't be able to play the piano, but Al says that he can help him with that and says he'll be there the next night for Sam. In the park, the French woman is walking her dogs when the killer finds and strangles her. The next day, hordes of teenage girls have gathered for the Beatles, and the police try to keep them back. Sam is walking past and ends up catching a girl as she faints. When he almost walks into traffic, Chopin warns him. Peter notices and comes over and tells Sam they found another body in the park. Back at Andrew's apartment, Sam listens to Andrew's recorded performances and wonders how he'll get through the concert. Chopin asks for food and Al arrives to taunt the dog. He starts reading the dog food box out loud, unaware that Agnes has come in behind him. Al warns him too late and Agnes tells him to stay away from Michelle or she'll reveal his charade to the world. She refuses to let anyone take her daughter from her and walks out. That night, Sam prepares as best as he can for his performance but apologizes to Andrew's reflection. Michelle comes to his dressing room and Sam tells her about Agnes's visit. She explains that her mother constantly reminds her that she's not pretty enough and she has no talent. Sam tries to reassure her and Michelle wonders how he can get through his life with his blindness. He tells her that sometimes you have to do what you feel is best and ignore others and tells Michelle she owes her mother her love, not her life. She considers what he's said and embraces him. On stage, Sam hesitates until Chopin literally pulls him to the piano. Unsure how to begin, Sam whispers for Al, who finally appears in a white tuxedo and carrying piano music. Al has to touch it so that Sam can continue to see it through their neurological connection. Sam wonders how he can play it, and Al tells him to just try. Sam goes ahead and discovers that he can play perfectly. Al explains that Sam played at Carnegie Hall when he was 19. While Sam performs, Agnes comes to see Michelle and says that Sam will leave her. She dismisses Michelle as soft and sweet and talks of how she's had to be tough for both of them. Agnes says that Sam can't want an ordinary girl clinging to him. When Michelle accuses her of jealousy, Agnes slaps her and says that Sam isn't blind. On stage, Sam finishes his performance and takes his bow, and then turns and clearly sees Agnes. Michelle realizes that Agnes was right and breaks into tears while running off. Chopin drags Sam off momentarily, and by the time he goes after her, it's too late. Michelle has merged with a crowd of teenagers outside cheering on the Beatles. Sam drops his glasses and turns as a photo flashbulb goes off in his face. Al finds him and Sam explains that he's blinded. He tries to cross the street and Chopin saves him just in time. Sam gets to a fountain to try to rinse his eyes out, but he realizes that he can't see. Al directs Sam to the park to find Michelle. Meanwhile, the girl finally slows down, but hears someone behind her. She turns and sees a masked man wielding a belt to strangle her. He chases her down and starts choking her. She stabs him with a nail file and breaks free. When they come to a fork in the path, Sam tells Chopin to find Michelle. The dog guides them into the park where they find her discarded purse. In the park, Michelle finds Pete and embraces him in relief. However, when she notices that he's bleeding, she realizes that he's the strangler. Sam hears her cries, follows them, and releases Chopin. The dog holds Pete down while Al directs Sam to the officer's handcuffs so he can restrain the killer. As the police take the deranged Pete away, Agnes arrives and blames Sam for endangering Michelle. Sam has already provided a cover story for how he recognized Agnes by her perfume. She lights a cigarette and thrusts the lit match into Sam's face, but he doesn't react because of his temporary blindness. Agnes believes she's been wrong all along and walks away. Sam tells Michelle to go after her. Once she goes, Sam starts to regain his eyesight and can make out Al at his side. Sam wonders why he's still there, and Al says he may not have saved Michelle's emotional life yet. Realizing what he means, Sam goes over and says that Michelle loves her, so much she'll sacrifice her life for her mother. Agnes insists that she loves her daughter, but Sam warns that it's a smothering love. She asks Michelle what she wants to do. When it becomes clear what Michelle wants, Agnes says that she has her own life and Michelle could do with a little independence. 
Michelle embraces her mother while Sam smiles and leaps. So this episode, Sam is blind, but it's not really about blind people. Like when Sam leaped into a black person in The Color of Truth, he was getting mistreated because of his color. But Andrew Ross, nobody's being mean to him because he's blind. So it's not really about him being blind. No, he's actually respected because he's a super rock star. Which is awesome. Yeah, it's really cool that people are just amazed by his talent so they don't have anything mean to say not that i'm sure he's hasn't experienced it in the past but but in this episode he doesn't he just happens to be blind right he has to stop a serial killer but he just happens to be blind well he's not blind but he is blind he has to act blind which is a little confusing because i assumed he was gonna be blind in the episode he looks blind (laughs) he acts blind ish ish not really He's bad at that. It would be difficult to pretend to be a blind person and see something and not react to it. Right, which is good that he had the flame thing happen to him at the end to cancel out her doubts, I guess. It was odd to me. If you watch where Sam gets flashbulbed in the eyes, Sam closes his eyes as he turns towards the camera. They cut to a shot of the flashbulb exploding, and they cut back to a shot of Sam with his eyes closed saying he burned his eyes. So he shouldn't have closed his eyes in the first shot before the flashbulb went off because, at least in the cut we saw, the flashbulb didn't go off in his face. So there was no reason for him to close his eyes because then his eyes wouldn't be burned. So that's a little bit of a production error. Yeah, maybe it was just instinct on Scott Bakula's part. You know, like, I'm going to put my face in front of a flashbulb. I should probably close my eyes. Like, just instinct. But they didn't catch it and make him redo it. If I edited the episode, I probably would have took the last couple frames out because it's okay that his eyes are closed after you come back from the shot of the flashbulb because if something flashed in your eyes, you would shut your eyelids. You forget that this was in low def and they probably couldn't see that his eyes were closed. (laughs) Oh, good point. Good point. We watched it on the UK DVD. We watched it on the HD DVR and we watched it on the Roku from Netflix. They were all pretty similar. Yeah. I didn't notice any difference. Yeah. I liked when Sam played chopsticks, and I thought that was really funny. I was pretty impressed that he could play chopsticks. That's really Scott Bakula playing chopsticks. And then later on in the episode, it's Scott Bakula playing all the music, and it's really good. Scott Bakula can really do anything. What was weird about that is how old is his character? Because he's done everything. He must have started like astrophysics as a three-year-old. He was probably like a Doogie Howser or Wesley Crusher where he was way advanced at a young age. So he was able to do more than the normal person. Yeah, but I mean, he knows all of this stuff. Just like Al, they must have lived 300 years before the episodes because they know everything about everything and have done everything. It'd be boring if it was like, what do we do? I don't know. Al was just like, I don't know. You don't, you don't know how to play piano. I don't know how to find sheet music. I think we're screwed. It would definitely be a little bit more interesting, I think. Maybe. I wonder. I don't think it would be boring. I think it would be like, oh no, what do we do? Well, there's five seasons. We're at the beginning of season two. So maybe as we go on in one episode, both of them won't know what to do. That would be interesting. I guess we'll see. Well, you probably already know, but. No, specifics like that, I really don't know. Like I knew the blind episode was coming up, but like I said, I thought he'd be blind. So I don't remember it that well. When I saw the preview for this one, I'm like, okay, so he's blind, but he looked down and saw his hands from his point of view. So that was weird. Supposed to be blind. I want to talk a little bit about Michelle. Her pants, if she wore pants, 
would be on fire. Liar, liar. <laughs> All she does the whole episode, besides, of course, suffering from the verbal abuse from her mother, Agnes, is lie and lie and lie to everybody. She lies to her mother. She lies to Andrew, Sam. She lies to Chopin, I think, even in one part. <laughs> well, you her lie to your parents? Oh, she's not really a kid anymore, so she shouldn't be lying to her mom. Right. She's what? She's over 18 at least. What? I'm thinking 20. Yeah. 21. Well, the thing about that is, again, you had perfect childhood. So I don't know if you guys, you listeners know that already, but Albie had a perfect childhood with perfect parents. Everyone with a perfect childhood, raise your hands now unless you're driving. (laughs) See, it's not just me. It's, It's a bunch of us. I don't know if they know. Like, would you know if you had a perfect childhood? Unless uh, yes. you compare it to someone else's. No, I, I think you would know. See, I didn't think mine was that bad. And then I grew up and was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, whatever. My mom did as best as she could with, with what she had, I guess. But yeah, this lady, I, I think she means well. Agnes. I think, like, I don't think that she knows the damage that she's causing. I think that she really just had a hard life and doesn't want her daughter to experience that. You know what I mean? Like, I really don't think that she's trying to harm her daughter. She just literally doesn't know that she's doing it. She's being overprotective, maybe? Oh, yeah. Majorly. But it's hard because I have a young daughter and it's hard to let her, like, go do things when I know that she could get hurt. Like, play on concrete because I just envision her, like, falling and scraping her knee or bumping her head or breaking her skull open. So it's hard because you have to let kids play and you have to let your daughter go to college and you have to let you have to let them go and you have to let them do things. But it's hard because you know how scary it is out there. You know the possibilities. You know how bad it could be. So you want them to have a better life. You want them to not get her ever. So I think that she had good intentions. She just went a little too far. She kept her too close too long. Sam put it well at the end of the episode that she was smothering her. Instead of mothering her. Hey, it rhymes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I mean, she really did love her daughter, but she just needed to give her some space. Agnes, I think, had a really rough time in her life, and she was projecting that on Michelle, I think. Well, and it sucks because she was blaming her, basically, for being born. Right, and saying, you ruined my life because from the age of two, I had so much responsibility taking care of you because did the husband leave? Mm -hmm. The father left? But no matter what happens in that situation, it is not the child's fault. She obviously had some issues prior to the baby being born, and blaming your kid for being born... They had, they're the only one who didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, <laughs> they didn't. Well, get... they did swim upstream and win the race. Well, right. But, other, other than that, no. Um, I don't think that's a conscious effort, though. No, I have no idea. I don't remember. <laughs> I really don't. Me neither. Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird because I've actually seen that done before I've in movies and in TV shows where the single mom is like, I don't want you to go through all the horrible things I went through and the daughter or son or whatever goes, really, I was that bad. I think it just comes out wrong. Like the mom really does want good for the kid. They just are blind to the fact that they're causing more harm than good. I can kind of understand Agnes being overprotective of Michelle, but what I can understand is telling her that she's not good enough. She's not smart enough. She's not pretty enough. She's a gorgeous lady and 
there's no reason that her mother should give her a complex about not being attractive when she's very beautiful. I also think her mom is jealous of her. Ah. And Michelle even calls her out on that. I mean, she got pregnant young, I'm assuming, and didn't get to do all the things that she wanted to do. So now Michelle's young and Michelle wants to do all these things. And Agnes is telling her she's not good enough to go be a star because there's no concrete success in stuff like that. So I don't know. It's it's weird that parents think like that and can say those things to their children. I mean, I don't have a teenager or a an adult child, but I can imagine how hard it is to watch them make mistakes and not be there to fix them before they happen. The part where Agnes comes backstage and is talking to Michelle and saying, look at him, he's a star. You're not good enough for him. Yeah, she's too ordinary. Right. It's so weird. You would think you'd be proud of your daughter being with someone famous and talented. Well, and she also says, I don't want you to get hurt as she's saying all these hurtful things and then smacks her in the face. Dude, and that was a smack. Yeah. That looked like it hurt. I just don't understand why you would get so angry but like I said, I've, I've seen this so many times in movies and TV shows that obviously this is a real thing. So it happens a lot. Is this maybe part of the moral or message of this episode, the parenting of Michelle? I think that if you're this kind of parent, you don't know. Would this episode maybe help you realize that you're doing this to your child? One would hope. I guess that's the point of this episode, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. Sitting down to record today, I was at a loss for finding any message in this episode. Yeah, definitely, if you love them, let them go kind of thing. It's got to be hard. I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> to me, overall, the episode was really good. Things that I saw in this episode that maybe dropped it down a notch for me was it looked a lot like they were trying to save money in this episode because they were in the same backlot corner that they were in in the previous episode, What Price Gloria, and the same corner that was in Double Identity, and I'm sure we'll see it in multiple episodes, but they're just in the back lot corner set. Is it bad that I didn't even notice that? No, it's good. That means you're into the story and you're not noticing the buildings behind the people. Yes. And also the use of the stock footage of the crowd for Carnegie Hall, which was, you know, the crowd applauding and getting up and standing up, which was great, but it definitely didn't match in with the show. It just looked weird to me. I thought it was like CG or something because... It just looked really funky. If it was CG back then, it would be black with green lines. Well, no, I just, it looked like the people were cut out. Like they had a weird outline around them. It just, something about the shot of the audience, the first part, not the balcony. I think the people that were sitting on the ground just looked really weird. It did seem odd. But those were the only two things that really took me out of the episode. Other than that, I really enjoyed it. It was kind of nice to see the whole Beatle mania thing going on. On the outside. It was like kind of touched on the Beatlemania. Right. Well, you'd have to get really good lookalikes if he was going to actually bump into him. Yeah. I like that they teamed Sam up with a dog. Like I mentioned in What Price Gloria, I love his acting with a dog. He just seems to act really well with dogs. I don't know if he's a dog person. It'd be ironic and funny if he wasn't. But he just acts good with dogs, I think. Well, and this dog was awesome. It was such a personality for this episode. And it brought so much to this episode. The dog was awesome. So good job. Good job to the Chopin actor. So when Andrew said something about her mom when they were walking to his apartment in the beginning, Michelle said she doesn't want to bring her up again. So they've obviously talked about her in the past and nothing has come of it yet. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, they've discussed her. So they've been together for some time, right? I would say weeks. But what's weird is, does he just have a concert every night at Carnegie Hall? How does that work? 
He might be in a limited engagement a few days a week. Because he's not traveling because they've been together. Obviously, they've discussed her mother, so she's already a problem. But who knows what Andrew already knew before Sam leaped in. But again, Michelle's lying about everything she's telling Andrew about her mother because Michelle was saying she told her mother where she was and that they wanted to meet, but her mom's just waiting for the right time. But none of this is true. Well, I'm sure she's embarrassed about the fact that her mom is horrible to her and won't let her go out. I'm sure if Andrew knew that, you know, he would say, you really have to tell your mom. And she already knows that. This is 1964. Do you think the reason she's still at home is because in 1964, women really didn't leave the house until they were married? Or do you think it's because she's being kept down that she thinks she can't go out on her own? I don't think her mother would have let her move out. Well, legally, you can't stop her. But she had such an emotional hold on her. She was going to leave Andrew to stay with her mom. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> like there there was no way that she would have moved out on her own i don't i honestly don't know about the 1960s what about last episode wasn't that in the 1960s and the two girls lived in an apartment by themselves so i guess it depended on the situation but it was more about the relationship between agnes and michelle than the times yeah i mean i'm sure that if that happened in today's society the daughter would still be living at home i could see that the actress who plays michelle cynthia bain I thought she was really good in this part. Uh, One thing I noticed is uh, probably because of all the emotions she was going through in the struggle, she chose to, when she said the lines, I don't know if they were read as written or she just did it, but she repeated a lot of words, not like a stutter, but just like to emphasize them. And I didn't realize it till I was pulling audio out of this episode for the podcast that she says every word twice while she's speaking. I did not notice that at all. But like you said, you didn't notice until you were pulling the audio out. Kind of like uh, Michael J. Fox does, and you don't notice it, but it makes it more realistic because it's like how people talk. You know, they they speak what they think most of the time, and that's how people think. Like you just said they twice. Exactly. <laughs> or did I edit it out? <laughs> so the French lady who gets strangled. I, I knew she was going to get killed when I saw her because it was sad, but I thought she was going to get killed the first night. She's walking her dogs in heels. I'm not French. I know that they're fashion forward. But ouch. I know that my grandma worked in New York City when she was like 20. And she had to walk multiple blocks or miles or whatever in high heels. And I just can't even imagine. But that's just what you did back then. I know now that you probably wouldn't see as many women walking their dogs in high heels. I just can't imagine the pain that you would go through just to walk your dogs in high heels like sneakers. Josephine, Napoleon. Yeah, she's a little French. (laughs) So the French lady gets killed. And she lives in the same building as Andrew and Pete. And then Pete's going to kill Michelle, which is dating Andrew. Do you think it was just random because he was hanging out in the park? Because those women just happen to be in the park. Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. Did he follow them to the park or was it truly random and he just happened to bump into them in the park because of the commonality of the residence? I want to say a cop should know if he's going to start killing women to not have an obvious connection because they're going to look at somebody who lives in that building. I don't think they would have looked at a cop, though. With Pete, do you think that he had the peanuts on him for his horse? Or do you think that he had the peanuts on him to lure French lady's dog or dogs away from her? Because he obviously gave them to Chopin. So I wonder, because he's in the same building, if he had a habit of giving the peanuts to those dogs, too. I had no idea dogs liked peanuts. Pretty sure they probably shouldn't eat them because of the shells. Actually, when I eat peanuts, sometimes I eat the shells and it's perfectly fine. 
Why? They're good and salty and crunchy. That's like eating the banana peel. You're not supposed to eat banana peels? Um, ew. No. <laughs> no, I don't eat banana peels, but uh, sometimes I do eat peanut shells. I think I used to eat sunflower seed shells, like the outsides. You can, uh, just not a lot of them. <laughs> but they are nice and salty and crunchy. But like the peanut shells, they look like they would taste like wood. I saw someone do it once and I was like, huh. So I tried it and I was like, that's not bad. Kind of tears up your mouth though. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but when you're a dog, you're like, what, am I going to peel these and then eat them? <laughs> I guess. And okay. Sam's like, spit out the shells at least. Elephants eat them whole, don't they? I actually don't know. I mean, I'm assuming, but I thought they spit out the shells for some reason. Oh, maybe. That, that Maybe in a cartoon. <laughs> I don't know in real life. <laughs> Their noses are so good that they can just shell peanuts. Hey, they can paint pictures. Who this, knows? This is true. This is true. <laughs> but yeah, I, what do you think about that? Do you think that he had the peanuts for the other dog or do you think he had them for the horse? Why was he carrying peanuts? I think they were for Chopin. He just had peanuts on him for Chopin? He might enjoy peanuts. One of the ladies that he likes might have a peanut allergy. Easy way to kill him. Well, he's the strangler, not the peanut attacker. The I will kill you now with my peanuts. <laughs> you better be careful what you say there. <laughs> Pete definitely has some anger issues. Yeah, he's angry about everything. He, Beatles, the Brits, the girls, things people say. <laughs> women. He's definitely not all there. Now, when did you know that Pete was the strangler? I didn't. And the same moment that she found out. Really? Right. Well, for me, again, I saw this episode about 24 years ago now. And I don't know if it's because I saw it back then or just because of the way I watch television now. But I know that they don't really put a scene in there that doesn't mean anything. So I accepted Pete's the neighbor. He's a cop. And that's a nice short scene. And it shows that Andrew has friends in his apartment building. But when he was in a scene only a few minutes later when they met and he was on the horse. Then I was like, okay, this is another scene that really doesn't develop the plot anymore. So it's got to be Pete. I assumed because he was a cop that he was going to end up helping Sam catch the killer. Like I just thought the killer was going to be some random person because that happens sometimes where they just, like the killer is just a masked person and he gets arrested and he's not really part of the story. But I just assumed because he was a cop that he would end up helping Sam. But obviously I was wrong. <laughs> so was that a good surprise that you didn't know who it was going to be? Yeah, I mean, it made sense. Like once she saw the blood on her hand and it was a good plot to it. Like I liked the way they did it. I'm glad it was him because it kind of worked out better. But yeah, I, I liked the way it, it, it went. It was a good surprise. Al did not make his first appearance in this episode until 14 and a half minutes in. Wow. He was leaving Sam stranded. That was the first that I think that it took that long for Al to get into an episode. Maybe he was having fun with his ladies. <laughs> well, I know in uh, the pilot episode, it starts out with Al driving. So he's maybe progressively getting later and later in an episode. That'd be bad. I enjoy Al. I wonder, um, maybe he was sleeping. Who knows? Like maybe the time was just off a little bit, but he can't be there 24 hours a day. I have to say, Sam, he's a genius. He's... In the apartment of a blind man, he's walking around looking for sheet music for how long? Yeah. Swiss cheese brain? Is that? I don't know. Also, why didn't he just keep the sunglasses on? Just in case anybody walked in. 
He wasn't good at playing the blind. For role. me, those sunglasses looked really dark, like special blind person sunglasses. I don't know if there are such a thing. He could still see a little bit because yeah. he saw Agnes and he saw his hands and he he didn't play the blind man very well. I mean, I guess you don't have to wear the sunglasses at home. My understanding is just so it's just so you don't freak people out with your eyes looking all weird in every direction. And if that's the case, why didn't Agnes see that his eyes are all crazy going in different directions? Like, Right. But he was still reading, so he might have had some vision. I don't know. Maybe he just knew what the box said, and I don't know. I don't, I don't. <laughs> what Sam should have done is start feeling the box. <laughs> like This is Braille. I don't know what you're talking about. Either Braille or uh, like Daredevil. He could read the printing, the raised printing. That is some serious talent right there. I had a weird, I guess, epiphany while I was watching this the second time. I was, uh, it was late at night. I'm sitting there. I decided to close my eyes, see what it's like to be a blind man. Totally not what it's like to be a blind man. Because when you close your eyes, what do you see? Black? Right. When you close your eyes, you see black. Okay. That's not what blind people see. I don't think. When you're looking out of your elbow, what do you see? <laughs> Follow me with this. When you're looking out of your elbow, what do you see? Um, I guess nothing. Exactly. And that's what blind people see. And that was the epiphany I had. That they're not walking around seeing black. They're walking around seeing the exact same thing that our elbows see. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. That's crazy. But it puts it in a different perspective, right? Yeah. So like they just, there's... There's nothing. There's There's, just no input to the brain. Exactly. There's no sense of vision for most blind people. People have certain kinds of blindness when they have brain damage to the back of their brain. They can't consciously see things, but other parts of their brain can still see things if their eyes function. So they can tell if someone's smiling or crying by their face, you know, happy or sad. They can move out of the way of objects, but they can't see them at all, and they don't consciously know they're there, but other parts of their brain still does. That's super weird that you thought of that, because my question threw me about the elbow, but... I'd like to know. I'm sure we have some blind listeners, and uh, if you're a blind person, uh, let me know if I'm right or wrong or totally off base with that. But if you're blind, how did you watch the episodes of Quantum Leap? You listened. I used to listen to TV shows all the time when I was younger, and I'm going to say this out loud, before VCRs. There, what? We had things called audio cassettes, and I had an audio cassette recorder, and I would record the audio of TV shows that I liked and listen to them over and over again. So I'm sure you can get a lot of entertainment out of television if you can't see it. You're so cool. (laughs) I'm not the only one who does this. A friend of mine I was talking to one day, and he was like, yeah, I used to audio tape episodes of The Fall Guy. I was like, me too. Yes, I miss that era. Yeah, I mean, now it's just like, Siri, Quantum Leap, please, season two, episode five. And it's like, sure, working, done, here you go. I did used to record songs off the radio on cassette tape. That was about as close as I'm getting to your story here. <laughs> so Pete, angry about the way people talk. So we'll see you later, like a, not a word yet, or I mean, not a phrase yet. I actually looked it up. The phrase was popularized by a Bill Haley song in the mid 50s, so... Maybe he just didn't like the whole rock and roll and teenagers and stuff. And maybe he's just mad in general because he's got no room to talk about how people talk. He was just angry in general. (laughs) And it was his job to protect the women in the park. That's why he strangled them. I'm so angry that there's a killer that I it's making me work harder, but I'm the killer. So I have to wait. What? (laughs) I just thought he was trying to advance at his job and he was going to catch the killer and it was going to be him and he was going to get a promotion. This guy's not thinking straight. He really isn't. Yeah, I don't understand. But then again, I'm not a psychopath, so. The restaurant scene, Sam says, excuse me, there's no mustard on this. 
Because you didn't smell it. You kind of smell mustard, right? So it is plausible. Right. They believed him. It was quick thinking. Well, he's either got to go with hear or, or smell. So he just can't say, I didn't hear the mustard. I didn't hear you put the mustard on my sandwich from the kitchen. Right. What kind of sandwich was it? Kind of like a Reuben looking thing? I have no idea. You're the sandwich guru. I did notice that Michelle's sandwich, it was a turkey club sandwich and it wasn't plated right. You're a dork. You are officially a dork. <laughs> when you order a club sandwich somewhere, anywhere, the cut ends are supposed to go up. So you see all the ingredients in the triple layer club. It was just like set flat. So all you saw was bread. It's a 1960s diner. All right. Maybe Have they hadn't have thought of that yet. Maybe. Ma- maybe that was time period accurate plating of a club sandwich. <laughs> You're such a dork. <laughs> <laughs> I love sandwiches. I love turkey club. You should, turkey clubs. We should make turkey clubs. Do we have stuff to make turkey clubs? <laughs> I liked how they mentioned as likely as a B-movie actor becoming president. And Sam's like, uh, yeah. How, how would that come up? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's so random. It was kind of funny because uh, the Back to the Future, of course, time travel, 1985, they had already addressed Ronald Reagan, the actor, being president. So it was kind of a funny joke because of that. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I just, I was like, that would be such a random metaphor that she would just pull out of nowhere. Yeah. What would be one similar to that? It would be like her saying, Way to put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a Triffid becoming a senator. No. I don't even know what you just said. That's like a Triffid becoming an Olympic judge. What's a Triffid? It's a plant that eats people. Huh. Hmm. Random. Yes. I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Ronald Reagan was still very popular at the time. So, uh, of course, they're going to mention that kind of stuff. Is it bad that I didn't know he was an actor? (laughs) Ronald Reagan? Like, I mean, I I knew he was a president before I knew he was an actor. I'd say you have to be an actor to be a politician. But that's another (laughs) subject. I was like, that's totally not the same thing as what I'm saying. Okay. But I mean, like, I knew him on the list of presidents in school before I knew he was an actor. Me too. Me too. He was an actor a long time before I was around, so. Oh, that was before your time? I have no idea how right. old you are. <laughs> in relativity of mm, two. In podcast years, I'm only about five or six. <laughs> so I got a ways to go. But I mean, I didn't know if it was. No, he was president when I was 10. Uh-oh, I gave my age, I think. You're old. So I, I didn't know he was an actor until I watched Back to the Future. That's probably where I learned it too. <laughs> Most of us. Um, I noticed that Michelle had clip-on earrings and so many women in Quantum Leap have clip-on earrings. I don't know if that's because a lot of women wore clip-on earrings back then and they're trying to be time period specific or a lot of the actresses just didn't have pierced ears or it was the costume designer or wardrobe department that just had a thing for clip-on earrings. But uh, just just weird things I noticed, like an inordinate amount of clip-on earrings. I just thought everybody had their ears pierced. I'm sure a lot more people wore clip-on earrings and had their ears pierced, because it was probably a thing you didn't do. Other little weird things I noticed. Andrew has a picture of himself sitting on the piano. He probably didn't put it there. You don't think so? Do you see him framing a picture of himself? That's what I was wondering. Do blind people have pictures? My thought on that is he didn't decorate his own apartment. All right. It's pretty sparse. <laughs> There's not a lot there, but I did notice a picture of himself. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Maybe somebody put it there for him. I think it's awesome and pretty amazing that Andrew lives by himself and takes care of his dog. It's not easy to take care of your dog when you can see. But I mean, he doesn't have like a caretaker or anything. Very that... self-sufficient. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible or they shouldn't be able to. I just think it's awesome that he lives alone and can function and do all that stuff and take care of a dog. Obviously a very smart and capable man. Oh, yeah. I can hardly do that. So so go him. Speaking of the dog, Chopin, I thought it was interesting that he knows that it's not Andrew, that it's Sam, because animals can see Sam. But he's really cool with the whole situation. He's like, okay, I like Sam. You know, he feeds me. I'm his buddy. This is cool. I wonder where Andrew is, but, you know, I'm not afraid of Sam and I don't want to run away from Sam. Yeah, he still tries to save Sam. And I like the part where he looks at Sam and then looks at the reflection of Andrew and then he looks back at Sam. Like, that's not the same thing. (laughs) It was funny. A little touch they did in the set that I noticed was a little braille on the kitchen cabinets. Besides being blind, he was like also an organization freak that'd be like labeling your cabinets cups or glasses. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you have to be. Or else you'd open all the cabinets and try to find it again. Right. One of those things where you have to keep everything in its place to find it again because you can't just look around the room. I just can't even imagine how hard that would be. One of my favorite scenes in this episode is when Sam is reading the dog food box and Agnes walks in and catches him reading the dog food box. And also in that scene is Al. Going, Sam, Sam, Sam. Why are you like, hey, buddy, there's a lady behind you. Yeah, or even Sam stopped reading or something. Sam, act blind. But uh, he didn't. Yeah, he just said Sam. He was acting like Agnes could see him almost. Yeah, it was weird. Very weird. It was weird. But if Al warned him, then she wouldn't have that on him that he could see. So it's understandable, but not realistic. Yeah, I'm thinking Al should have been like, yo, stop reading. Act like you're blind. It's one of my favorite scenes because Dean Stockwell and Jennifer Rhodes have dialogue that overlaps each other, and both of them are having dialogue with Scott Bakula that has only a singular dialogue, but with double meanings for both of them. They did really good. Yes, uh, really good. So that kind of made up for the fact that Al didn't warn Sam enough for me. Oh yeah, it was still a good scene. I just... It's funny in this episode, you know, when you're watching a scary movie and you're like, no, don't go into the kitchen. Stop calling out for the killer. Don't go that, you know, when you're that was like that with this episode, like just tell him that she's there or close your eyes and stop doing that. (laughs) You were yelling at the screen. Yes, I was. was. (laughs) There's just a lot of things going on in this episode about Andrew being blind and Sam not getting it quite right. Michelle says that her mom thinks that she's not talented and she's not beautiful and she's ordinary. We see Agnes actually say that to her, that she's ordinary. Do you think that that's why she's with a blind man? That she doesn't think that she can be with a guy who can see her? Yes. I think she has a very negative self-image and she probably does believe that she's not pretty just because she's been told it her whole life. No, I'm not saying that Andrew is not in her league because he's blind, because he seems like an awesome guy. But for you to be with a blind man and not think you're beautiful, I just feel like that probably one has to do with the other. I would agree. I think that she felt like she could be herself more with a blind man just because he wouldn't know how hideous she was, even though she wasn't, which to me is something like Marilyn Munster where she thinks she's ugly because her whole life she's been told she's ugly when she's actually gorgeous. Yeah, I don't know. I guess Andrew really is good for her, but not because she's not beautiful. Because 
they're good together. They seem really good together. And uh, it's really difficult to say because Sam really likes Michelle. But does Andrew like Michelle the same way? I would think so since they're already hanging out and already together. And Michelle already thinks that Andrew's amazing. I think it's a mutual thing. I really think they like each other because I, I think that Sam still has part of Andrew's personality, like we've said before. And I think he would pick up on the fact that Andrew doesn't like her. If, But what's not to like? I mean, she's awesome. I like her. She's a sweet little girl. A little bit damaged because of her mother. Right. But he's trying to fix that. And I think they will work it out. Happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get to the end of the episode and everything that's going to happen, there's a short little scene that I really enjoyed where Sam Andrew reassures Michelle that she is beautiful and she doesn't owe her mother her whole life and she has to start thinking of herself. Do you think that you owe your parents your life? Or, I mean, your parents brought you into this world and they raised you and gave you everything that they had and they sacrificed for you. But does that mean that you owe your parents the same in return? I don't think so. I think uh, you owe your kids the same thing in return. It's like a pay it forward kind of thing. Exactly. Pay it forward. Of course, you know, they're family and they took care of you. So if the need arises, you should help out and take care of them. But you shouldn't lead your whole life dedicated to what they want you to do. You have to live your own life. You only live once. I agree. I think that if they need help, help them, obviously. But to a point, I mean, don't dedicate your life to your parents. Or it's kind of wasted, I think. Right. And I think any parent that puts in all that work would just want their child to be happy and succeed. Being a parent's a lifetime commitment, so you help them the rest of their life with whatever they need. Without throwing it back in their face. Or demanding repayment, yes. Right. So again, Agnes, I think, was wrong there. I also like the part in that little scene that Sam says, Sometimes I feel like a scientist in the middle of an experiment that no one else believes in. <laughs> a little play on words there. <laughs> well, he really was, but yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know how that applied to the real life Andrew. Why would Andrew be saying that to her? Cuz being blind, he feels like he's in a science experiment that no one believes in. Cuz that's oh. what he was saying that to being blind. Oh, okay. I couldn't figure that out for the life of me. I was like, why would Andrew say that? I wasn't thinking he was blind. I just thought it was funny that Sam was relating to her. When he was trying to make it sound like Andrew was relating to her. So how did you think that Al was going to help him? I know you'd seen it a long time ago, but... That part I didn't remember. I thought Al would probably maybe do the thing like he did in Genesis where he said, okay, take this stick like this and have like hands playing the piano for him. Turns out Al can't play piano though. No, but he can hold piano music. Right. That was the first time we kind of saw that. Well, I guess he had that scroll with the Egyptian right. letters on it before, but we didn't... Um, it was the first time that they showed like it disappeared when he let it go and then... So the rules right now are Al has to be touching something in the imaging chamber for it to appear. Well, I guess that would explain his clothes. Otherwise, that would be silly. <laughs> They'd be a little closer then. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Scott Bakula really playing the piano and doing an amazing job. I had a chance to just listen to that whole middle segment where he is playing the piano. Watching his fingers, it's really him and the music is beautiful. So great job, Scott. Again, 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 again. Yeah, he's kind of amazing, huh? He's like a infinite threat. <laughs> so like a triple threat, but more? <laughs> but infinite, yes. They picked the right guy for the role, I think. You know, it's funny. Speaking of that, I actually went on Pinterest and I was looking up Scott Bakula and they have so many pictures of him a, a lot of the times with his shirt off and 
there's a lot of mention of Quantum Leap on there, but there's so many Scott Bakula fans out there. And people are like, I just pinned this to look at him. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a bad looking guy still. I mean, this is 25 years later and he still looks good. Yeah, he aged well. So Al mentions that Sam played at Carnegie Hall when he was 19. It was 1972, our researcher tells us. That's pretty cool. I've actually been to Carnegie Hall. I went to a rehearsal there. It was amazing. How do you get there? I have no idea. My grandma had tickets. I was I was maybe seven. I don't know, but it was just like the coolest thing ever. No. Huh? The answer no. is practice, practice, practice. Oh, <laughs> I've heard that before. I just didn't even <laughs> connect the two. <laughs> But he also makes a comment about sequins and candelabra. Is that a Liberace reference? Oh, yes, obviously. Liberace's probably the most famous piano player, I think. He was the most flamboyant, obviously. And it's really cool that they mention that because Scott Bakula was just in that movie that won all the awards uh, behind the candelabra all about Liberace. I had no idea who was in that. Yeah, he's totally in that. He had to grow a mustache for it. I don't like him with a mustache. I really don't. Why didn't we watch that movie? I haven't seen it for sale yet on Blu-ray. I figured it would have been out by now. Maybe it's on Netflix. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody go watch the Liberace movie. Scott Bakula's in it. It's called Behind the Candelabra. Hmm. And did you know Dean Stockwell was in The Secret Garden? I had no idea that either. That one I did know. My grandma is in love with Dean Stockwell and told me that he was in that movie. A lot of grandmas are in love with Dean Stockwell. <laughs> He's their generation Scott Bakula. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Another part of the scene that stuck out to me is the mom definitely has a smoking problem. As in, she doesn't know how to smoke? <laughs> well, no. Well, <laughs> but the fact that she wouldn't stop smoking just because of her attitude, because people treated her wrongly when she was the one who was wrong for smoking. She's a little rough around the edges. But as soon as the guy walks away, she lights up another cigarette. It's like she couldn't stop smoking. In every scene, she's smoking a cigarette. I did not realize until after my conversation with Jennifer Rhodes that she didn't inhale at all during this episode. And uh, she elaborates on that story later. But now that I watch it back, it's obvious. And I can't believe I didn't see it. I don't smoke. So I guess I didn't really pay attention to that. But once you pointed it out to me, it is kind of obvious. <laughs> Miss Rhodes was concerned that people wouldn't believe she was really smoking. But I didn't notice it at all until after she mentioned it. Me neither. It's one of those things I think we're all more critical of ourselves than other people are. Oh, yeah. Usually when you make a mistake, nobody else notices but you. I think she did a really good job on the show. Luckily, Sam could read music and play the piano, so the concert worked out fine. But then, as Sam was walking off stage, he saw Agnes and said, Mrs. Stevens, whoops. Yeah, that was pretty bad. And then Chopin dragged him back on stage, so he couldn't even really go after Michelle until afterwards. And then the whole flashbulb thing, and then he was really blind. Did you like how they did that blind point of view with the stars and streaks coming towards him? Yeah, that was kind of cool, because you could kind of see what was going on in the background. Yeah, like Dean Stockwell there just standing there, kind of. Mine, when that happens to me, or light up, like I've never had a flashbulb. <laughs> so how often do you put <laughs> no. your face into a 1950s <laughs> me, camera? Let me rephrase that. All right. If I ever had like a bright light shine in my eyes or something like that, you know, it still kind of distorts your vision. Obviously not that bad. But mine's kind of like, if you close your eyes, it's like black with all these weird colored blocks. I don't know what everyone else's looks like, but that's always what I think of. I don't know. Does yours look like that too? If you get like a, here, go look at that light bulb right there and tell me what you see. <laughs> no, I, I would just see spots probably, but yeah. not like a really cool blue hue and no. different streaming stars. But, you know, you had to do something. Maybe that's what the director saw when he would get a flashbulb 
<laughs> in his eye. I don't know. <laughs> we can't say it's wrong because I've never experienced that firsthand. Right. But Al insists that he goes to the hospital. Now, I understand with what Hayden said that it's Sam's body physically, but it's Andrew's aura. So everybody sees Andrew. Right. Now, you tell me how Sam is going to go to the hospital as a blind man and say, I can't see. Help me. My eyes hurt. I can't see. Like I never thought of that. (laughs) Because he would be in the emergency room and they'd be like, sir, the reason you can't see is you're blind. Right. Like, you're the famous Andrew Ross and everyone knows you're blind. You're on the cover of this magazine and it says you're blind. Yeah. So Mm. I don't know how... Sam was going to go to the hospital and get that fixed. Like a flashbulb exploded in my eyes. Sir, how do you even know that you're blind? Like <laughs> I understand Al being concerned for Sam, but that doesn't make sense now that you bring it up. But it's one of those things where if you don't think about it while you're watching it, you're like, he should go get help. Oh, no, but he has to help Michelle. I don't know. I just kept thinking, how is he going to get help? He's a blind man. <laughs> right. So I guess they could physically help him by pouring stuff in his eyes but they wouldn't be able to restore his sight really because he's from blind. their perspective he's blind yeah right even if because no matter which way you look at it if it's physically sam or if it's physically andrew either way it wouldn't work out so no matter what theory it is i mean no matter who it physically it is whether it's sam or andrew the doctor sees andrew ross the famous blind man mean <laughs> i'm sure a lot of this is going to come up throughout the series because you know nobody really ever thought of the mechanics of being inside someone else's aura until this show yeah i mean al was worried i get it but tears tears fix the problem so at the right time <laughs> right if the tears were working 38 seconds earlier then he would have saw the match so that was pretty good timing yes because at least it made a believer out of the one person who doubted he was blind. They did pretty good with... I, I'm guessing that was makeup around his eyes to make him look all bloodshot and... His eyes were all red underneath. I know, and his eyeballs were too, so I don't know if like he was rubbing his eyes or they have a thing where they put a screen in front of your eyes and they blow menthol uh, in ouch. your eyeballs to make you tear up and look, look like you have irritated eyes. So I don't know if they did that or it was just you know him rubbing his eyes or some kind of method acting. So you think running over to a fountain and just putting fountain water in your eyes is a good thing? I guess if you have no other option. Right. It's not like he had an eye-washing station behind him. I was like, run across this busy main road yeah, with no. all these cars while you can't see to go to that fountain, not go behind you into the restroom right there and use the water fountain. Dramatic effect. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. But that gets him one step closer to the park to save Michelle. I guess he had to cross the street no matter what. Why did the temporarily blinded quantum physicist who traveled in time cross the road? To get to the fountain on the other side. Exactly. (laughs) So I have to say, you did not notice that Michelle stabbed Pete in the back with a nail file. What did you think happened? This is what I thought happened. I thought she got away from the strangler or Pete, and uh, then she just happened to bump into Pete and she didn't realize it was the strangler at first until like she recognized maybe his outfit or scent or something and this is the three times that i watched it so you didn't see the nail file and you didn't see the blood on her hand not once i don't know if every single time i was taking notes (laughs) at that specific time or i was looking at something else in the scene like a tree or a dog 
I have no idea. And I didn't see the blood on Michelle's hands like either. They literally, there's an entire frame of just her hand. I have no explanation. Blood. It makes me wonder how many other things that I miss. But once you mentioned it, I was like, how could I have not seen that? That makes total sense. That's why she knows that Pete's the strangler. But until then, I was like, wow, she just kind of figured it out. <laughs> That's funny. Well, like, I just thought, because she looked scared and then they showed the hand i thought at first she just realized his like facial expression changed right like i'm a psychopath <laughs> yeah there's a certain look <laughs> dude I'm, I'm thinking there is i've seen it anthony perkins <laughs> but then they showed her hand so i i saw it all three times i watched it yeah <laughs> i only saw it the fourth time i watched it and i was like wow that's funny i saw something you didn't see <laughs> what was i looking at I don't know. <laughs> now I want to watch it a fifth time. So what did you think about Pete being the killer and being a crazy guy and saying he had to protect the women in the park by strangling them? Yeah, I don't understand that. Doesn't really make sense. No. I don't know how a cop goes crazy like that. The actor who played Pete, Kevin Skousen, I think he did a good job. I mean, I bought him as a New York cop. Oh, yeah, definitely. And a psychopathic strangler. How do you think Sam did saving michelle while he couldn't see it's good he had the help of al and chopin because without that it'd be just like if andrew had to save michelle um i think he did good and he wouldn't have been able to do it without al or without chopin but it's good that chopin knew because chopin liked pete so he knew that pete was attacking michelle so chopin's a very smart dog because he knew to attack Pete in that moment, but not to attack Pete in other moments. He was saying to himself, hey, what you're doing to Michelle is very messed up right now. Exactly. I need to defend her because she's the girlfriend of my buddy. I mean, Sam said, go get him. But yeah, I think that Sam couldn't have done it without Al. Definitely not Al, but without Chopin either. Al was good with directions, like a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. But then again, I don't know if I could run downstairs blind. Now, there was a railing. But, yeah, still. Run? I don't know. Walk, no. maybe. Run? <laughs> I don't know about even walking, but I guess... An emergency, adrenaline. But again, this is Dr. Sam Beckett. He's good at everything. Very true. He could probably... He was like, yeah, you were blind once. You don't remember that? <laughs> <laughs> it was a year where you just went around and closed your eyes the whole year. You mastered it. <laughs> that might come up in future episodes. <laughs> And to me, it was interesting that we had like a wrap up scene at the end of the episode before the leap. I like when they do that, where whatever the crisis of the week, in this case, the strangler attacking and killing Michelle is over with. They have a nice little scene at the end where all the characters get to resolve their issues, which is another reason why Sam was there, not just to save Michelle, but to save Michelle from her mother in a way. Emotionally save her. Right. Yeah, it was like a little, and then they lived happily ever after set up, which is nice for the leapy to go back to. He gets to go back to it all wrapped up nicely in a pretty little box. I thought the match thing was weird. Like you wouldn't just believe him because you look at him and see that his eyes obviously don't function. But you put a match in front of his glasses and he didn't flinch. So you believe him. Wouldn't he feel the heat? Like if someone put a match near my face, I would probably feel the heat before I saw it anyway. Yeah, I think you would hear the match, number one. Especially someone with better senses. Like if he wasn't seeing. Right. Agnes lit the match and then lit her cigarette and then put it in front of Sam's face. So I could give him a pass on hearing it because it was lit away from him. But like you said, the heat. Right. I mean, I know he was wearing glasses, so maybe that's why he didn't feel it as much. And uh, maybe he did see it coming because he was starting to get his sight back, but he knew what she was trying to do. So he had to 
not flinch in order to have Michelle know that he's really blind. Yeah, and even she didn't believe him. When Andrew got back, it's not like he could have faked it. You know what I mean? She could have continued to test him and Andrew would have passed the test. If it became a serious point between Michelle and Andrew, Sam could have even said, let's go to a doctor and have him tell you I'm blind. Yeah, considering. He's blind. <laughs> yeah. Very tricky situation. It opens up a whole lot of possibilities for the rest of the series. What can Sam do that maybe his leapy couldn't do? And how will that be viewed by outside people? They just needed to break out that men in black thing, memory eraser, <laughs> and just snapper. So, like we mentioned, Sam's sight comes back miraculously right after the whole match incident. Right. And Al says that he's a sight for sore eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess if you're ever going to use that, that would be the time to do it. Right. That would be the funniest time to do it. <laughs> and he used it appropriately. And he said, uh, how many fingers am I holding up? And Sam says four. And I was like, yeah, close enough. <laughs> close enough. That was funny. I chuckled a couple times. I saw an internet meme once. I was like, when you hold up three fingers, all I see is this. And it was like just a blurred picture. And it was like, I don't see this. And it had like 95 fingers. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what you think I see, but it's just a blurred vision. Of, but Al was moving his fingers back and forth too. So. Yeah. So it might have been in with the comets and the streaking stars. The more you know. Um, <laughs> I could see where he could get confused. So I think that it was good that Sam called out the mom on her issues. I think that Michelle definitely needed help in that situation. He said that you were choking the life out of your daughter as much as Pete was. Yeah, it's pretty harsh, but yeah. needed. And that might be what made Agnes realize what she was doing because she had like a change of heart right there. Yeah, I think that knowing that Andrew was blind and that she was wrong in that aspect made her rethink a lot of stuff too. And when Sam said that he hopes he can take good care of her daughter, that kind of clinched it. Yeah. I think it was an all-in-all good conversation, but at least he saved Michelle emotionally and physically. Sam opened her eyes. Ah, another eye pun. (laughs) I notice in a lot of TV and films, when they do have a blind person, they're always joking about being blind, like see you later or, right, you know. That's why he said that. See you later. And that's why Pete gave him the weird look because he can't see anything. You just got that right now. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I thought that it was because it was in like the wrong era because Sam's always saying the wrong things in the wrong time. Like he says slang words from the future. Sam is in the body of Andrew Ross, who just happens to be blind. Thank you. <laughs> wow. I can't believe I didn't get that. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith on A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The welcome Study Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. My name is Lou Sitzma. I'm the one responsible. I introduced Karen to Farscape. She got sucked into the series big time. Now we're doing this podcast together. I've created a monster. Reviewing all 88 episodes and the four-hour miniseries. That's a lot of podcasts. At the end, will it be enough for her? It has to be. But the thing that scares me most? My biggest fear. Is by the time we get to the end... Hope we can make it. Will the two of us still be on talking terms? It could get ugly. Good thing the journey is sure to be a blast. Lots of great scaper conversations. Captured in these chronicles, so you can know. The 
dangerous things that we've heard. Put on your leather pants and reload your pulse pistol. I'm on another planet. What the frell? I hate this stuff. Chicks love it. Can I get a hell yeah! It's my duty, my breeding since birth. It's what I am. You can be more. Escape Cost, your guide to the wonders of Farscape. Listen to the Scaper Chronicles at scapecast.org. As we promised earlier, we have an awesome interview with Jennifer Rhodes, who played Agnes Stevens, or Mama, in this episode of Quantum Leap. And here it is. Jennifer Rhodes' career spans four decades. One of her first Hollywood jobs was a small part as Robert Wagner's secretary in the Paul Newman-William Holden blockbuster Towering Inferno. In features, Jennifer is best known for her role as Winona Ryder's mom in the cult film Heathers. In television, she is most recognized for playing Penny Graham's Hallowell for eight years on Charmed. She has had guest star television roles including ER, Third Rock from the Sun, Friends, Ally McBeal, The Larry Sanders Show, Murphy Brown, Designing Women, L.A. Law, The District, Equal Justice, and Fame. But leapers know her best as Agnes Stevens in the Quantum Leap episode, Blind Faith. Thank you for joining us today, Miss Rhodes. Uh, it's really a pleasure. Um, My pleasure. Can we start off, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your experience filming the episode of Quantum Leap, Blind Faith? Well, actually, uh, that role was one of my favorite roles, uh, guest starring on television, other than Charmed, of course, which I got to do the same part for many, many times, many weeks. But Quantum Leap was uh, a role I just always loved doing. And in fact, I used to call it my mommy dearest (laughs) part. And um, I loved working with those two men. And the whole experience was terrific. It's funny you mentioned Mommy Dearest. When I was watching this episode, that's one of the first things I thought of was... Uh, really? Yeah, the Joan Crawford part played by Faye Dunaway in <laughs> yeah. Mommy Dearest. And I was, was wondering if that was like a conscious decision at the time to make a character similar to that, or if that was discussed with you or the director or the writer. I don't think so. I, I, oh, no, no, that wasn't done. But uh, I just remember later when I saw it thinking, oh, God, it's Mommy Dearest. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it wasn't in, uh, planned, no sort of happened. What was the set like? What was the director like? Uh, this director, David Finney, was his name? He only did one episode yeah. of Quantum Leap, so I was wondering if he was uh, good yeah. to work with. Yes, I do. I'm trying to think of what he looked like just in my mind this morning. And I thought, gosh, whoever it was, I just really enjoyed working with him, though, because he was, a, uh, as I recall, was a an actor's director. And by that, I mean discussions of the character and he felt comfortable with him. I trusted him. That's about all I remember. And I remember the also the, the smoking on that show. When I first saw the role, I thought, oh boy, I, my chance to be Betty Davis here, you know, with a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and I had smoked for years. And I gave it up, um, oh gosh, I think when I was 32 or something. And um, so I hadn't smoked for years. And of course, I had to smoke on this show. And uh, I thought, well, I look like I know what I'm doing because I'm, you know, a smoker. And I, I look so dumb smoking because I, I didn't inhale it. You know, I kept going, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so much for my Betty Davis image. <laughs> so you enjoyed your time on Quantum Leap? Absolutely. Uh, what was Scott Bakula like to work with? Well, you know, both of them were very gentlemanly and very, uh, as I recall, it was a very creative process, very giving actors 
um, Dean Stockwell was, um, I had always been a big fan of his back from years, you know, enjoying his work and, uh, uh, I think married to the mob. <laughs> of course, he was a child actor too, as you, as you all know, uh, the boy with the green hair, et cetera. And, um, but I, I was thrilled to, to work with him because I had been a longtime fan. The part of the episode where, uh, you put a match up to Scott Bakula. How many times did you have to yeah. do that, and were you a little bit nervous about maybe burning him? Well, I probably was. You know, you're, I'm going back many years now, so <laughs> fortunately, remember, he had glasses on, so that was somewhat of a help. But um, I don't recall being nervous about it. Maybe not as nervous as he was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about, uh, of course, you played Grams on Charmed, and everybody really loved that character. Could you tell us a little bit about the time you spent on Charmed? Of course, I had gone in to read for Charmed, and it was just a two-parter, and it was just a, for two shows. And um, fortunately, I wound up doing about 14 of them. So obviously, I must have been doing something right. And I wound up guest-starring on that show for every year that it was running for eight years. It's interesting when you do a character, you know, recur or your series regular, I think the writers must start seeing... Um, your personality somewhat coming out as you do it, and then they start adding things. And I thought, I feel so close to this character, you know, my in terms of my humor. My sense of humor was very much like Grand's, I, I think. In fact, a lot of my personality was very similar. And um, uh, it was a fun role to do. Obviously, any time you get to come back as a big bad wolf, you know, or, <laughs> or which I did in one episode. And... Um, I remember, I said, we're witches, darling, we can do anything. <laughs> you know, so it, it just sort of leaves the road wide open to just trying almost anything. There's nothing you can't do when you're playing someone who's already dead anyway, you know. But it was uh, it was one of my, obviously, one of my favorite experiences in terms of recurring on something. And um, there are a lot of charm fans out there like, running all over the world. I, get, I still get fan mail uh, from, you know, Germany or Russia, Austria, Australia. So that's always fun to hear from people all over the world about something you did on TV. You know, <laughs> it's great. Even though you're only on, like you said, 14 or 15 episodes, it seemed like you were there all the time because you were just Grams and you, you were part of the show even when you aren't on the episodes. A lot of people thought I was a regular on it, I think, from what they've said to me in mail. But they, um, and also they referred to my character a lot even when I wasn't on the show. So, yes, I, I think a lot of people thought that, too. And I and it felt to me as if I was. You know, I felt a part of the, of the show. Uh, there's Internet rumors about a charmed reunion. Is there any truth to that that you know of? Well, I saw that. And uh, somebody, one of my fans on my Facebook said, uh, what do you think of this? And I said, well, I think they should remember that family is everything. Yeah. <laughs> <But, laughs> uh, and then I read somewhere that this new revival of it, you said reunion, you're talking about the reshoot of it, right? Right, right. Um, I, I read that they were that the girls weren't doing those parts, that they were casting someone else. Hmm. In other words, it would be a more like a spin-off or something. So the truth is, I really don't know. I mean, they certainly haven't contacted me yet, but uh, I would know. <laughs> but um, I hope that... Uh, I hope they do, you know, but whoever they cast, you know, for the uh, girls. I'm, I hope that was misinformation, but it seems to me that, 
you know, they would bring their original cast back, but I don't know. Um, I know that Alyssa Milano had a reunion of the cast and crew at her home. Uh, I think it was around the holidays, just this past year. And I went to that, and it was terrific seeing. I saw, you know, a lot of the, some of the cast there, not a huge amount, but there was, um, you know, the producer, a couple of the producers, and a lot of the crew guys, and, and, people I worked with, you know, the hair people, makeup people. It was fun seeing everyone again. Did your real-life relationships with the actresses who played your granddaughters kind of uh, seem like granddaughters uh, here and there? Like, did they look to you for advice or uh, inspiration? I can't say that they look to me for advice or inspiration, but I think that any time you do a role over a period of time, you sort of bond with the people that you're doing it with, and there's a sort of... It's like doing summer stock for actors, you know. You, <laughs> you're very involved with the people at the time you're doing it and working together, and then everybody goes their own way, and very rarely do you see them anymore. So but that was one reason I was happy to see her again. You know, Alyssa, at least. Holly wasn't there. You've done over 30 films and 50 different TV shows. Um, what really stands out in your career, like uh, favorite memories of like all those experiences? I, I mean from uh, the towering inferno to even movies that haven't even come out yet, like Lovesick. Mm-hmm. Well, the towering inferno was one of, I had a very small part in that, uh, but it was one of my very first jobs that I, I just come to uh, California. And uh, I remember I did a high chaparral and then I got this part on towering inferno and all of those major, major stars and uh, I remember I worked with Robert Wagner. I played his secretary. And um, so I had a couple of scenes in it, but I think I wound up just being in one. But it was a thrilling experience. I always tell people I left early and missed the fire. They said, what was your part? And I said, I left early and missed the fire. Um, Heather's, I think, was another highlight for me that has really turned into a cult film. Yeah. I went on a writer's mom. And... Um, I didn't work directly with Christian Slater, but all my scenes were with her. And um, that film today, even today, young students will, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm doing my thesis on Heather's film students. And um, and even, a, you know, a generation away, they all know that film. I've had people quote me my lines in that film. <laughs> so Heather's was, I must say, a, a highlight. And I had a couple of wonderful experiences filming movies. I wish the movie had been as good as the experience of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I did one uh, with uh, Sherman Hemsley years ago called Ghost Fever. It was great fun. I shot that in Mexico. The film wasn't very good, but I didn't get much play. And then I did one in Thailand called, um, it was called Out of the Darkness. They kept changing the title, but I got to go to Thailand, which was a thrilling experience. Um, oh, one time, of course, this was a movie of the week, but I, I got to meet and work with Sheldon Winters. Oh, wow. And I, it was one, I think probably, I don't remember the role, but I remember her. I used to say to her, do you want me to cue you on your lines? And she'd say, oh, yes, would you like? I thought that was the greatest. And in television, uh, you know, God, there's been so many, there's been good roles before, you know. I, I did about three episodes of Fame. That, that was a good thing. I, I enjoyed, I had some wonderful uh, experiences on Designing Women. That was uh, a terrific part, and, um, and working on that show was 
quite an honor. Um, Larry Sanders' show played the Orange Juice Lady. That was a terrific part for me. And, of course, as I said, Charmed. And, and that, that the one that, that stands out for me is Quantum Leap in terms of just a single guest star. On Quantum Leap, you were not the bad guy, because that would be the serial killer, but you were, I would say, an antagonist in the episode, right? Uh, what is that like playing a bad guy versus playing, like, a good guy? Oh, I think it's always more fun for actors, don't you? Aren't they always more interesting than the sweet ones? <laughs> <laughs> more memorable, that's for sure. That yeah. whole monologue about how you had to take care of her since she was two because the guy walked out on you, that was really good. Thank you. When this show was coming up on our podcast, a lot of people like you and enjoy you from where you play Mrs. Sumner on Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, really? Yeah. Was that like a fun experience and the people still recognize you for that? Oh, I don't know if I get Third Rock so much um, because I I played the Dean's wife, which wasn't... Uh, I did three episodes of that show. I did a pilot. And I remember, actually, there was a really cute scene I had with John... Um, and uh, where he kissed someone and then she, she slapped him. So as he left my house, I kissed him and he thought he was supposed to slap everyone. So he slapped me in the face. <laughs> you know, which they were, they were sort of physical bits, I remember, on that show. And uh, I was always getting, you know, done in by somebody, as I recall. But uh, I enjoyed doing that. He's a lovely man, John Lisko. No, I mean, he just was just a, such a gentleman. And uh, I remember he sang Night and Day uh, on the episode I did. I was thrilled to hear him sing. I didn't even know he was a singer. Obviously, he is. he's been on Broadway recently. But I enjoyed very much working with him. For me, one of my favorite shows, uh, of course, besides Quantum Leap, uh, is Ally McBeal. And you guest starred in the season two episode, Only the Lonely, and it was the one all about the face bra. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, how was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. I enjoyed that role. And those ladies on the show were just, again, so good to work with, you know. I, I enjoyed that part. I mean, there's been several I have not enjoyed, but that was one of them. Like, I did a Friends one time, and I it was not a very good experience. What happened? Well, it, it just was, I mean, Jennifer Aniston was nice, because I worked with her, but you know, he did it. Nobody really said much. You know, everybody just. <laughs> um, I didn't feel very welcomed on the show, <clears throat> and I think it's always important when you're the series lead to welcome the guests on the show. And I just, it just wasn't a nice. I mean, no one was rude or anything like that, but it just wasn't a very welcoming experience. Like designing women was, you know, or and then other shows I've done, you know, just the role was sort of yeah. <laughs> you know, I could take it or leave it. A couple of sitcoms, and, and I still I enjoy doing sitcoms because you get to mostly do them in front of a live audience, which I enjoy doing. Uh, you recently did a Sean Saves the World with Sean Hayes. Uh, was that in front of a live audience? And in front of a live audience, is that more like a, doing a play? Yes, it is. Except if you make a boo-boo, you can stop. You were asking me about Sean. Yeah, Sean Saves the World and working with Sean Hayes. Oh, he's, I liked him. He was very sweet, very sweet. I see there's a perfect example. He came up to me and said, welcome to the show. I said, thank you. And he gave me a big smile. And when I left, I even gave me a hug. You know, that's funny. Warm. It was very warm. Um, you know, that show, um, I had a small part on that, but it was a kind of cute part. And um, it was, <laughs> I had to sing 
three lines of uh, Blame It on the Bossa Nova. And the funny part is, I don't sing. I mean, you know, I can sing Happy Birthday, but that's about it. And it was it was an a cappella group, a reunion of um, Linda Lavin's um, a cappella group. So we had to get up as if we were performing and, and sing three lines. And uh, and then I faint from hunger because I was trying to lose weight to get into my costume I wore in college. So it was a cute little bit. But then they, anyway, this happens to them. I'm sure you've heard actors say this before. There were two scenes with dialogue and then singing, and they cut one of them. So I wasn't too happy about that. But... It was such fun because here I was singing, and behind me is Lorna Loft. Of course, we all know Judy Garland's daughter, mm-hmm. and there, and of course Linda, whose family I guess came from. She came from opera, and then there was Maxine Weldon, who was this wonderful jazz blues singer. I'd seen her years ago at the uh, Fine Street Bar and Grill in Hollywood, and she these magnificent singers behind me, and here I am up on. Oh gosh, <laughs> I got to get through this. <laughs> So that was kind of a new experience for me. Sounds like fun. It was. You have projects uh, that we've yet to see, like the movie uh, Love Sick. Could you tell me a little bit about that? That looks interesting. I like that kind of film. It looked cute. I, I played uh, Allie Larder's mother, and uh, she brings him home to dinner, and we're sort of, sort of I, don't, I did it a few months ago. I think it's supposed to be uh, released this year. And uh, now there was uh, Matt, uh, Matt LeBlanc, and uh, he was absolutely charming to me on the on the film. <laughs> you know, I remember thinking, "Uh oh," because uh, I didn't, as I said, I didn't really talk to anybody other than Jennifer Aniston. And he was a doll, a uh, very sweet man to work with. And um, that picture hasn't been released yet. I, I think it's probably supposed to be released this year. I'm not sure. If people want more information on you or to maybe contact you, uh, where can they go? Oh, um, if they want to contact me for any reason, they can go to my website, which is uh, jenniferrhodes.com. Or uh, I have on Facebook, which is a little bit more, I keep up a little bit better, which is my, uh, you, you just look up Jennifer Rhodes Actress fan page. That's how it's listed. And that I sort of keep up on what I'm doing and <clears throat> what's happening. And, but if you want to email me for some reason, then you should go to the website. Do you have any other upcoming projects you'd like to tell our listeners about? Nothing um, definite at this point. I'm I'm on a veil for a, a lifetime, um, you know, lifetime channel movie of the week for a lead in that actually in about three weeks. So we'll see what happens with that. And um, I'm working on a um, uh, we just had a play reading. Of course, this would only be you know in the LA area, but uh, it's a play called The Street with a Hole. I'm hoping that gets on the boards because I would lo- I love to do theater. And uh, other than that, it's called Auditions Are Us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure any day now I'm going to be discovered, you know? get to talk to all the cool people i do you should do an interview or two oh, i'm too nervous to talk to anybody <laughs> <laughs> um but she was really nice uh she was just getting over bronchitis so she had a little bit of a raspy voice but i think uh, it was very nice of her to do the interview for us i think we've all done podcast episodes with bronchitis now uh i know i did one with the flu <laughs> yeah and i didn't know what was going on but it turned out all right the power of editing yes <laughs> 
And we have some feedback. We have an email from Eric Young. Hey guys, I'm a new fan of Quantum Leap. My father watched it, so it was on in my house, but I never just sat down and followed. Very much loving the show, loving the podcast. Would love to see one a week, though. Keep it up. Doing great. Eric Young. Thank you, Eric. That's very nice of you. Uh, We would love to do one a week if we could. We just don't have the time. It takes about 25 hours between the five of us to produce an episode, and we all have day jobs. So we're doing the best we can. But we love that you love the show and keep listening. Thank you very much, Eric. And we have a YouTube comment from Swoop77777. The comment's from the episode Double Identity, and he says, Waste of internet space. That's how shitty it is. So that was nice. Yes, we really appreciate your feedback. I had put, I think, the first five or six episodes of the Quantum Leap podcast on YouTube just to get the word out there more. And uh, people seem to be listening to it, but uh, my hope is they come to the website or go to iTunes and listen to a better quality version. Thank you very much. And uh, please continue to listen and give us your opinion. (laughs) When we asked listeners, what's everyone's favorite episode of Quantum Leap and why, Mischief Maker Studios said, gosh, it's hard for me to just pick one episode because there's so many that are my faves. I think my most favorite one of all would be the pilot episode because it started the whole Quantum Leap adventure. And I remember the ending of it and how my family and I gathered around the TV to watch the pilot. And in the beginning, we didn't know what we were in store for. But by the time it ended, we were all rooting for Sam. I have not felt that type of excitement for a TV series before or since. I wonder if any Quantum Leap fans can relate to this. I definitely can relate to it because I have have no idea where it's going. And I'm really excited to see where it's going to go. It was a great pilot as pilots go. Jackie Morris said, I loved MIA, also loved Shock Theater, which then went to Leap Home, which were two fabulous episodes. My favorite has to be the trilogy. Love the twist, won't spoil it for anyone, but wish the series had carried on because there was so much material for another series from just those episodes. So she just mentioned episodes that you haven't seen yet. Yeah, so I've more to look forward to. So her favorite episodes you haven't even seen yet. How awesome is that? That's pretty cool. I envy you. Do you envy me? I I know when I make you watch my silly things that I like Harry Potter and (laughs) Hunger Games. Vampire (laughs) Diaries. No, sit down and watch these 98 episodes straight. Hey, you get paid to watch that show. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But I know that I I feel that for you. Or if I have someone read a book that I've read, I feel that way too. I feel that excitement for you. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited for me. It's a great show. Jenna Ray said, probably the Leap Home two-parter. What Price Gloria, because it was the first time Sam leaped into a woman, MIA, the Leap Back two-parter, and a Leap for Lisa. Also enjoyed The Color of Truth and all the episodes where he leaped into black men and women. Nick Sheets said, The Leap Home Part 1 and 2, The Boogeyman, How the Test Was Won, Southern Comforts, to name a few. You're not supposed to say that name out loud, by the way. Why? Am I not supposed to know that yet? You'll find out when you get there. Okay. Shauna Mayer says, The Americanization of Machiko. Did I spell that right? Love that subtle I shake the bugs off thread that connected both women. Also, of course, I love the Beth episode. The title escapes me. You did spell Machiko correctly. I know how to spell Machiko because I typed it a whole bunch a few weeks ago. Which is saying a lot for him and spelling. I like the song Beth, but I don't know what episode she's talking about. Beth, I hear you calling. (laughs) Is it me you're looking for? Yep. It's a good one. My favorite kiss song. It's my favorite Glee song. (laughs) (laughs) Different generations. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Peter Wenesek said Jimmy, MIA, The Leap Home 1 and 2, Glitter Rock, Shock Therapy, Leap Back, Ghost Ship, Leap for Lisa, Lee Harvey Oswald 1 and 2, The Evil Leaper 3-Parter, Trilogy, 
Memphis Melody, Mirror Image. I've watched the entire series countless times and know every episode like the back of my hand, but those are my favorites. Those are a lot of favorites. There are so many good episodes. This series is not like others where they have a handful of great ones. This has so many great episodes. It's ridiculous. And as you notice, a lot of the listeners are agreeing and mentioning the same episodes over and over again. There was a couple new ones in this one, Glitter Rock. Are you looking forward to that? What could that be? I'm thinking like 80s hair rock band. Or he leaps into a chick in a (sighs) chick band. Sam leaps into Gem from Gem and the Holograms. (laughs) Hey, you never know with this show. You never know. First time Sam's leaped into a cartoon. (laughs) Sam, we're cartoons. (laughs) I'm sure that fanfic has already been written. I was going to say that they should have made that a Saturday morning cartoon. (laughs) Ooh, ideas, ideas. H.L.S. Booker says, I love M.I.A., the leap back home, because they're so emotive and well-written. Also really like the Evil Leaper episodes, a really interesting idea, and Mirror Image even if it does turn me into a blubbering wreck. The Halloween one with the goat was good too. Even now I can't look at a goat without remembering it and getting slightly creeped out. There's so much in that that I have no idea what they're talking about, but I'm intrigued. Though I don't want to cry. Blubbering. Crying. You will cry a lot Hmm. in Quantum Leap. Might be happy tears, might be sad tears, might be both. But creepy goats, I don't know. We'll have to see. Matt Cook said Shock Theater and The Leap Home, the pilot. Really the whole series. Not a bad episode. I agree. I can't think of a stinker. We might get to one, but I can't think of one yet. (laughs) A stinker. Corey Lynn Whitlark says, Jimmy, another mother, Miss Deep South, maybe baby, the Americanization of Machiko, basically season two, LOL. Hey, that's what we're covering now. Season two. She likes it. That's good. Corey Mitchell said, Lee Harvey Oswald, of course, even though Netflix doesn't have it. It doesn't? We haven't gotten to that one yet. It's good to have the DVDs. (laughs) Clinton Seadog Gardner says, all of them, I can't decide. So, all the listeners of the Quantum Leap podcast seem to be big fans of Quantum Leap. I wonder why. (laughs) Lee Harvey Oswald isn't on Netflix. There's a whole bunch of them, really. Like, it's weird. Like, one per season or maybe two, the good ones aren't on Netflix. I wonder if they do that so people do have to go out and buy the DVDs. It's like the Redbox rental copies where you can't see the bonus features, so you still have to go buy the DVD. Right. I guess Netflix is good for Quantum Leap to get you interested in it, but if you want to watch a whole series, you're going to have to... Pull out your VHSs. (laughs) Or buy them on DVD. (laughs) I saw on Instagram today, somebody bought the complete series of Quantum Leap, and it said, because Netflix doesn't have all the episodes, I finally bought them on DVD. So their plan worked. I guess so. It worked for me. I bought them. I would have bought them anyway, probably. I'm surprised that you don't have it on Laserdisc. Oh, wait, you do. (laughs) And VHS. I do. And And the novelization. Yeah. (laughs) So... What are you thinking when you hear these episode titles? I don't want to spoil you at all with things, but I think episode titles are kind of okay. They just give you a little hint, but you really have no idea what they're about. Well, because I recently read 112263, I'm intrigued by the Lee Harvey Oswald episode. I really want to see that one. The other ones could be so many things. I mean, like I said, Glitter Rock, who knows? The Leap Home and the Leap Back, I have no idea. Like, obviously, he doesn't leap back until the end if he does leap back i don't know i have no idea the ending so i don't know mia i'm assuming the person he leaves into is missing in action probably a prisoner of war i don't know that would be a fair assumption i think so that that'll be interesting but all of these if if somebody said they're good they're probably gonna be good i mean i really haven't seen a bad one yet going into this episode the title was blind faith so you originally thought it was about religion i did i did so you never know right 
There are many ways you can leave feedback for the Quantum Leap podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can go to our website, quantumleappodcast.com, and there's a whole bunch of different ways to get a hold of us there. Um, you can also go on to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. And we are on Twitter at quantumleappod. And we're on Instagram at quantumleappodcast. If you have something really cool that's quantumleap related, go ahead and tag us in it. Like Kyle Gray did. He has a picture of himself with the sun behind him, so it looks like he's leaping. And he just tagged us in his uh, quantumleap related picture, so that was great. Thank you very much, Kyle. So that's a good way to let us see what you have that's Quantum Leap related and also spread the word about the Quantum Leap podcast, which is great. We do have now almost 1,400 likes on Facebook. We're almost halfway to our goal of 3,000 likes on Facebook. And this is very soon into the podcast. So I'd like to say thank you to everyone who liked the page. And if you haven't, please go and like the page. And tell all your friends to come like us too. And share the page. Did you know there's over 100,000 people that like Quantum Leap on Facebook? No, wow. That's a lot of people. So we're only looking for 3% of those people that love Quantum Leap to like our podcast. And now a segment from Hayden all about his take on Blind Faith. This is by Hayden McQueenie and read by John Bucanis. to all our leaping listeners, or is that listening leapers? While watching Blind Faith, something stuck out at me, and in my mind, it branched off into a number of theories, which I felt deserved discussion in this segment. We were told by Al that Michelle was the fourth victim of the Strangler, and Sam is there to prevent her murder. Why is it that Sam leapt to save Michelle and only Michelle, when if he had leapt to an earlier point in time, he could have attempted to stop the Strangler before he killed anyone? I'm sure if Sam had known that the sexy French lady was to be a victim, for example, he had done something to try to save her. He certainly liked peeving on her while he was disguised as being blind. A scene I love, by the way, because it shows that Sam is human and has human urges, a fact which is diminished as time goes on. I am sure there are numerous behind-the-scenes reasons for Michelle being the only one saved, such as the writers wanting to make the story more personal by focusing on Michelle and her long-suffering mother, while Sam pretends to be blind. Which, by the way, is more proof that it is Sam's body leaping around and not just his mind or consciousness. Since if he was stuck in Andrew's body, he'd be using Andrew's useless eyes and would not be able to see. And it gives Scott Bakula a chance to show off more of his musical skills. But because we get so engrossed in the Quantum Leap universe, I wanted to come up with some in-universe answers. In my mind, there appears to be two factors which affect the mission which Sam attempts. The first is what God, time, fate, whatever... GTFW once changed, and the second is what Sam is actually capable of doing. From each of these, numerous other minor things come into play as well. Starting off with the GTFW, we need to consider whether there is some sort of grand design and whether each person has some destiny that needs to be carried out, or whether all of history is just a mass combination of each person's choices. It might seem odd to talk about destiny and things being predetermined on a show that is all about changing history for the better, but when we say Sam puts right what once was wrong, it is worth wondering if there had originally been something that was planned, considered right, by some outside force, GTFW, and that there is some outside force messing things up, for example, the devil. And if that is the case, then Sam would be more like a space-time continuum cleanup crew. 
If there is not any grand design, then that would mean that Sam is more like a teacher or a guide, helping people to make better decisions and preventing or punishing those who are determined to do the wrong thing. I'll come back to the idea of the grand design later, but if there is something that is supposed to be carried out, which for some reason didn't, that would mean that the GFTW had plans for Michelle and that her destiny hadn't been carried out yet. Maybe she was designed to do something major herself or influence another person to do so. This is not to say that the other three lives were any less important, just that perhaps their destinies had already come to pass. I personally believe that since Michelle was studying to be a nurse, and this is something she seemed passionate about and was one of the few things that her mother approved of, that she did end up becoming a great nurse and ended up helping to save a lot of lives. Getting back to the topic of hand, which is why couldn't Sam save everyone, we have to remember that saving Michelle's physical life wasn't the only thing Sam was there to do. He was also there to make sure Michelle could live her life as she chose. If Sam had leapt into an area sometime earlier and had managed to stop the Strangler earlier, then he would not have been in any position to carry out his secondary mission, which would be vital should Michelle have some destiny that needs to be carried out. The ripple effect is prevalent in Quantum Leap. And to use a quote from the show, the lives Sam touched, touched others and those others. So Michelle probably did end up touching the lives of many that she encountered. And while we're on the subject of ripples... Let's consider all the other people that were affected by Sam's intervening as well. First, there was Michelle's mother. All she really had in her life was Michelle, which is probably why she was so smothering to begin with. It is said that death is always hardest on those who are left behind. And in the original history, she would have had to deal with her only daughter's murder. She probably would have ended up with severe depression, could have turned to alcohol or drugs to try to numb the pain, or even ended up as a vigilante. Her life now consumed to bring the strangler to justice. What sort of life is that to live? Then, in a brief period after Michelle was saved, but before Sam talked to her about how she was treating Michelle, she probably had just gone back to smothering Michelle. Maybe even more so considering the near-death experience. Nothing will change until Sam does something to change it, after all. But finally, now that Andrew and Michelle are together, she's liberated of her responsibilities of taking care of Michelle. I would hope that she would use her new spare time to enjoy her life, and to do some good, because ultimately, she is a good person. Speaking of Andrew and Michelle, if, as Sam had predicted, they ended up married, then they probably had children. And with such good people as parents, how could they not have ended up doing good things too? To finish on the discussion of the ripple effect, there is always the possibility of the negative ripple. In time travel works, it's often referred to as killing Hitler risk. The idea is that if you could go back in time and kill Hitler before he could rise to power, then theoretically, you could save over 6 million people. But who's to say that one of those people was not worse than Hitler and would end up doing even worse things? The same thing could happen here. It's possible, however unlikely, that one of the Strangler's first three victims was a complete psychopath, and if allowed to live, could perform monstrous acts even worse than those of the Strangler. I personally do not subscribe to this theory in the Quantum Leap universe because it would have invalidated the basic message of trying to change history for the better. But it is still not impossible. A conversation between Stewie and Brian from The Family Guy comes to mind. They traveled back in time 10 years, and Stewie warned Brian not to change anything because it could have consequences neither of them could imagine. And when Brian asked where he learned that, Stewie replied, Quantum Leap, which baffled Brian considering the fact that Sam changed history all the time. The other major factor that comes into play when it comes to what Sam is able to change is Sam's own abilities and limitations. It is lucky that he is in peak physical health, with full vision and hearing, has trained in martial arts, and is incredibly intelligent. That puts him in a better position to get through adversity than a lot of other people he has replaced. But he still has some limitations. The first is the situation itself which leads up to the event to be changed. The first three victims were murdered while walking alone in the park, with nobody else around. There was nobody for Sam to leap into to protect these women. 
And also, if he had leapt into the victims themselves, then he risked being the one who was murdered. Theoretically, he could have just stayed home. But with the strangler determined to kill, that just means that some other innocent person would become his target. The other major limitation is the information that is available in his own time that Ziggy is able to access. It is very likely that in the original history, the strangler was never caught. If he was, then surely Al would have told Sam who it was. And so how could Sam know who to look out for and who to try to stop before they went into their rampage? So it makes perfect sense that Sam would leap into Andrew Ross as the closest person to Michelle at the time. Maybe Andrew had originally tried to walk Michelle home, but without his eyesight, couldn't do anything to stop the strangler when he attacked. Even though Sam was blind, when he saved Michelle, he had two extra sets of eyes to see for him. And so this really was the only possible way to stop the strangler. Now, this brings up another good point. Once Sam did catch the strangler, it would show up in the records. So why couldn't Sam then leap back and try to stop the strangler earlier? Why? For the same reason listed above, the killing Hitler risk. The fact that there was nobody to leap into and his secondary mission of saving Michelle's emotional life. It really does appear that there is a method to the madness of the grand design if it exists. This brings me to the final part of my segment, and I'd like to discuss how I see the grand design. There are four physical dimensions, length, breadth, depth, and time. But since in the quantum leap universe, time is able to be manipulated, I think there must be some kind of fifth dimension, which the controller of the grand design must be in, and whoever's messing it up. If you have trouble picturing this, then I advise you to watch Men in Black 3. There is what they call a fifth dimension being who can see all possible events in all possible times over any area. Sam's theory on time travel is what he calls his string theory, that each life can be thought of like a string, which one end being birth and the other death, and that by joining the ends and then balling up the string, the days of one lives cross over each other, enabling days to be skipped over. I think that the grand design might also be a string, with everything that happens in all timelines already printed on it. The time travel aspect could simply be the same as Sam's theory, with a string being joined and balled up, or rather smaller loops being created. When Sam travels in time, the string moves back over itself, and once Sam changes history, a loop in the string appears. Everyone in the string only experiences going over the leap caused by the string crossing over itself, and the history that is erased or changed ends up in the resulting loop that gets skipped over. So that is how I view the grand design. Everybody has a destiny to fulfill. It's just that sometimes GTFW needs help cleaning up the mess that someone else is creating, which is where Sam comes in. The destiny string is balled over, and the parts of history that needs fixing is just skipped over. Sam can't help everyone, but those he does help ends up touching others in a way we can't even imagine. Thank you to Sarah for sharing her thoughts with me when I asked for input on the Facebook page. She too believed that Michelle was destined for greatness. If you have any thoughts about something I've talked about or will talk about, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Also, if you have any suggestions for something to discuss, I'd love to hear that too. Till next time, may you all take a leap of faith and fulfill your roles in the grand design. Thanks, Hayden, for your input. We'd love to hear what you think about each episode. And really good points we didn't even think about or mention in our discussion. So it's awesome that somebody else can get so much more and something different out of the same episode. And thank you very much, John. He's one of the newest members of our podcast. You might recognize John Bucanis's voice from the closing credits. Originally, they were only supposed to be for the alternate ending of Honeymoon Express because Heather winked out of existence. So it didn't make sense for her to read the credits. I don't remember that part. 
<laughs> but they were so good, we uh, kept them. Since then, he's been so kind to do more voice work for us. So thank you very much, John. I think thematically, it's it's pretty simple, and I think um, uh, this the notion of experiencing life in somebody else's through somebody else's eyes is 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 a very um, it, it's simple, but it's enticing. I think the relationship that uh, the two the two men in the show had, Don's always really good about that, and Magnum he had it. He's really, I think that's um, that was an unusual relationship. Then the fantasy of being able to go back and change something and 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 fix a mistake or, or I wish I what we were talking about earlier about taking different choices or different there but for the grace um I think that's just uh that's just kept the show alive it's so cool to bump into young people who are experiencing it for the first time I'm like oh man we saw this new show quantum leap is that you really you and it's like yeah we're watching it with my my big sister or my dad or whatever and it's really it's really neat it's good to be it, pr- pr- so proud of something and have it have legs, you know, uh, and that, and it, yeah, I mean, we did 97 hours. Uh, are there some hours better than others? Yeah. And there's some that weren't as great, but overall it's like, there's very seldom if I flip it or see it, I can go, oh, that was a good episode. I remember that. Or that a good, there was something about that episode that worked. Even if the whole story doesn't work, the notion of, you know, the rape episode wasn't the best script in the world. I don't remember who wrote it. I'm sorry. But but the the idea of this man having to be in a body of a woman who had been raped and deal with that was a good idea. Heather, I understand you have some trivia for us. I do. And some that I didn't even spot. I feel a little silly for not noticing this first one. All right. The World Trade Centers were in this episode. Opening shot almost, I think, after the opening titles this episode takes place four years before construction even started on the world trade centers a little bit of a timing error there yeah hmm how could we explain that we can't whoops maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a pretty big error but i uh, i could see why they would do it because that shot back then meant instant recognition hey we're in new york city not anymore well i mean now you still know but but now it takes on a different meaning when you see it you're like oh sucks I remember watching a movie right after it happened and they had the trade centers and I was like, wow, you'll never see that again. It's in so many movies and TV shows. Because it's the classic New York skyline shot. Right. So right when Sam's running through the crowd, he's yelling for Michelle as she's running away and the whole flashbulb thing happens and he's running through a crowd of Beatles fans. And on December 3rd, 1965, the LP Rubber Soul would be released in the UK, which included the song Michelle. So that's a really cool kiss with history, and uh, either Sam had an influence on the song Michelle, or the song Michelle had an influence on the character name in this episode. Yeah, because it was a little Beatles in the background, so maybe they named Michelle that because of it. Well, well, well. It was cool to see the Beatles. Uh, It would have been nicer to see more of them featured in an episode, but it was cool that they were there. Yeah, it would be interesting to have a Beatles episode. Maybe like Sam... Leaps into Ringo Starr. <laughs> Next week on Quantum Leap, Sam is the fifth Beatle. <laughs> Al, I don't know how to play drums. Trust me, Sam. Sam, you were already in a rock band. Also, the stage manager who yelled at Agnes for smoking, he was actually in How the Test Was Won. He was actually Dr. Young's mirror image. He was the Lee B. Wow. That is crazy. 
So they reused them and I never even noticed. Yeah, I don't remember that. Is that bad? I guess you don't really see the Leapy's reflection that much because you see him as Sam. I remember the reflection of the doctor from that episode just because of the glasses because Sam wasn't wearing glasses and the doctor was. I was wondering about that. Right. So my brain is connecting it. Yes, definitely the same guy now. That's pretty cool. I know he looked familiar, but I just thought I saw him from something else. Sloan Fisher, I think, played that part. Both yep. parts. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So we learned in this episode that all animals, not just dogs, can tell the difference between the Leapy and Sam. They can see Sam and Al. So it's just people that have a problem. Yeah. Like I said about uh, Percy Jackson, the mist. Humans, mortals are very unobservant. What were you saying? <laughs> For some reason, Al lets Sam freak out about the next concert and doesn't tell him that he can play the piano and has played at Carnegie Hall in his past life. That's true. He's like the whole episode, just trust me, just trust me, instead of just saying, Sam, you can play the piano. Don't worry about it. Dramatic effect. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I guess it puts us, the viewers, in suspense because we don't know how he's going to accomplish this. And that would be very nerve wracking if you had a performance and you didn't know how to do whatever special skill you were going to perform that night. Like even myself, when I have a performance and I know what I'm supposed to do and I know how to do it, I'm still nervous. So can you imagine having to play at Carnegie Hall and not knowing you can play piano? I'm nervous when we record the show. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Al likes to have the power. Like he messes with Sam. I guess, you know, you're settled in your job. Yeah, he's leaping around in time. Yeah, I'm back in the 60s, whatever. But he knows that Sam will be fine. So he's like, hey, just trust me. And it's not him sitting up there on stage either. So he doesn't really care as much. Nope. Speaking of Al and not caring about Carnegie Hall, did you notice he blows kisses to the lady in the green in the front row? She, yes, I noticed that. Crowd's the same both nights. Both nights. The same crowd, the same dresses, the same people, the same shots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it would have worked if they were all like black or white clothes, but the green dress really gives it away because you're like, didn't I just see that same lady in a green dress earlier? And the fact that Al blows a kiss to her and it's not like she winks back at him. Like, I don't know why. That was just weird. That they right, because she, <laughs> she can't even see him. Right. This was 1964. And people back then, I don't think, had as good of grooming habits as they do today. Like, wash your clothes or wear a different dress a different night. You know, maybe shower in between. So, could be, in-universe explanation is she just wore the same dress two nights in a row. Or they use the same footage. I think that was it. <laughs> it's it's a cost-saving uh, technique, and it really doesn't harm the story. It takes you out for half a second, because then you're like, that's the same, f well, it's a TV show. I think if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't know. That's true. We are watching this multiple times. And we're paying way too close attention on some details. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little nitpicky. Yeah, She might bit. just be his biggest fan. Hey, she, Michelle has some competition. Lady in the green dress. Lady in the green dress. Is that like lady in red? Yeah. <laughs> lady, lady in green. green. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're sorry about that. <laughs> Next time on the Quantum Leap podcast, we talk about the Quantum Leap episode, Good Morning Peoria. Good morning, Peoria. Ow! This is Howlin' Chick Howl. Coming to you live on WOF. Woof, woof, woof. Woof. Oh my God, I'm a DJ. I can't believe it. Without rock and roll, I am dead. It was my ticket to number one. Now what am I going to do? I'll be lucky if I don't have to sell the station in a year. 
She could hold out another 18 months if she doesn't eat well pay any salaries. Maybe I had Ziggy run some figures, and it's grim with a capital G. Maybe now all we can do is pull up the drawbridge, get ready for the dark ages. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon the city council passed a law effective immediately that forbids the airplay of music known as rock and roll. Now, we here at WOF believe that is wrong. And accordingly, we intend to keep playing rock and roll until we can persuade them to change their minds. I want to have the number one radio station in the universe. But right now I'd settle for just getting right back on the air. Maybe I can help you with that. I think I'm going to like that episode. Seems something I can relate to. And was that Patricia Richardson from Home Improvement? Why, yes, it is. And from what I remember of this episode, it's just a fun episode. And it's all about people on the radio. So we might like that one. So tune in next time to the Quantum Leap Podcast when we talk about Good Morning Peoria. Until next time, this is Heather. And this is Albie saying, remember to look before you leave. The hard part about time travel is that it often leaves me in the dark. Fortunately, there always seems to be someone around to offer me a helping hand. Or paw. But no matter whether my faithful companion has two legs or four, it doesn't really matter. I usually wind up doing the dirty work myself. But that's okay, because helping people out is like music to my ears. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com to listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when a new episode is available. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, researched by Juan. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. He's a serial killer and he's blind, but he has to prevent. I have no idea what you just said, but it was wrong. Scott Bakica. Scott Bakica. <laughs> totally not what it's like to be a blind man because when you close your eyes what do you see your eyelids <laughs> the outline of what you saw before you closed your eyes what do you see in general what do you see <laughs> i don't know light black black <laughs> i don't know you don't know what you see when you close your eyes my oh, eyelids i have to work with her <laughs> i'm gonna call daryl get you replaced <laughs> colin john bacanis <laughs> What do you see when you close your eyes? Man. But like, I see the outline of you. <laughs> okay, let me stop laughing. Okay. Ask me again. <laughs> All I need is the word black. It's not going to happen, is it? Every episode. Black? Right. When you close your eyes, you see black. Okay. That's not what blind people see. I don't think. Okay, when you're looking out of your elbow, what do you see? <laughs> Follow me with this. When you're looking out of your elbow, what do you see? I'm <laughs> <laughs> I 
It's really thrown by that question. <laughs> trying to prove a point. I know. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question. So we'll see you later, like a not a word yet. Or I mean, not a phrase yet. Uh, I actually looked it up. It was popularized. Uh, I actually looked it up. The phrase was popularized. I actually... Popularized. I actually... You're such a dork. I love sandwiches. I love turkey clubs. You should... Turkey clubs. We should make turkey clubs. Do we have stuff to make turkey clubs? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the 28-minute show and the hour and a half bloopers. (laughs) I was just thinking about the fact that we have bacon. I did not realize this until after my... I did not realize until after my conversation. uh, Jenna Ray said, probably the leap home two-parter. What price, Gloria? Because it was the first time Sam leaped into a woman. MIA, the leap back two-parter. Oh, those are two different things. Okay. The leap back two-parter and a leap for Lisa. And also enjoyed the color of truth. Well, you just read that one. Right. I don't know why you're reading the wrong one. I was was wondering how long it would take you to realize (laughs) you're reading the wrong one. (laughs) Because I'm a dumbass. So could you imagine having to play a can? Uh, so could you imagine having to play a can? Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs>